to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Read your Bibles if you would and turn to 2 Corinthians is where we are, working our way through that book, and we're on chapter 3, I believe now, or no, chapter 2 still, I'm on chapter 2. We're getting there. And as you might recall, we are working through the portion of Scripture where Paul is dealing with a very, very heavy heart. As you may recall from last week, Paul is reminding them, or not reminding them, but he's giving kind of a state of effects of, of, I wrote you a severe letter, and we looked at the doctrine of a church discipline as we looked at last week, and the need because there was sin in the church, it had caused a problem or a rift. There was a rebellion against Paul, excuse me, and his authority. Because of they are looking at him and they're saying, how could God be with someone who is suffering so much? Look at Paul's life, the beatings. The, there's no way God can be with them. And, you know, we're, we're almost like that today, don't we? We look at pastors and churches who struggle, and we think, well, God's blessing isn't on them. But then we look at a church of, of 10,000, 20,000 plus, and we say, well, there's God's hand and blessing on them because they're growing. And that's how we use it. We use man's standards many times to bless or, or to, to say that's what God's doing. Well, I believe Paul probably would not have had a 20,000-plus megachurch. He would not have multiple venues. He probably wouldn't have a worship team. He would just be one guy going to one house as he starts planting churches bit by bit as people come in. But they look at them, and other people are finally trying to assert their authority over him. It says, look at Paul. There's no way is he a man of God. There's no way. Look, he can't even. His, his, his writing is very powerful, but his speech is contemptible. His, his preaching style just isn't powerful. And Paul is dealing with this, and, and there's sin in the church. And we saw last week how he had sent Titus with a severe letter, and that letter was to challenge them in their behavior and their motivation. And Paul said, I wrote that after a very painful visit with you because you did not treat me as you should. And that's where we lead to this week as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 through 17. And I want to share with you, there's three points in this passage that we're going to get. So before we get started, let's just pray and ask God to give us wisdom. Father, we do plead for wisdom. We ask that you would send it, Lord, as a, as a, as a rain that just, just floods this church. Open up our minds and hearts. Lord, let the words this morning... Find fertile grounds in our, in our heart. May it be cultivated. May it grow. May we see the increase. Lord, I pray that, you, that your spirit would not be quenched, but you would send it in a powerful way. Let me speak words that are edifying. Be with my speech. Let me be clear-headed and clear-minded. Let me speak the words that are edifying and then fill up what's lacking. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. So we're just going to go right into it. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And there's three points excuse me, three major points that I want to get from this passage. The first one, and this is important, this actually falls from last week. We could have put this on the tag end of last week's message, but it was a good one for the day. 
is the first thing that you need to recognize is that sin leads to lost opportunities. Sin in the life of a believer and sin in the midst of a church can lead to lost opportunities for the gospel. We see that in verse 12 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, When I came to Troas, Troas was one of the cities there in Asia Minor, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. This passage gives us a snapshot of Paul's heart after he had written that severe letter to the Corinthian church. He's anxiously waiting for Titus, who had delivered that letter, praying that Titus would come back and give him a good report that the church had repented and they're seeking reconciliation. When Titus did not return when expected, Paul assumed the worst had probably had happened. And it had stirred up his soul. He says, I could not find any rest. He might have asked, did Titus get there safely? How did they receive the letter? Did they accept the letter? Did it fan or did it quench the flame of rebellion against Paul? You can imagine this as he's sitting there. He's living in a world that did not have instant communication. And there was no texting. There was no internet. There was no Twitter or Facebook. There was, there was no telegraph or telephone or telewoman, I suppose, would be the next one. I am doing well with the women part, am I? Yeah, not today. But as we see, communication was very slow. And Titus probably had to take the last boat before the fall or before the winter came in. And Titus did not show up when expected. And you could imagine probably the sorrow rising up in his heart. Remember, have you ever had that? Have you ever had it when you remember we talked about that last week where you're struggling with someone and then you don't see him? And all of a sudden the expectations when you're going to see them, what are we going to say to each other? How are they going to respond? And you can just imagine that now a hundredfold as they are separated by hundreds of miles. And Paul is just not sure what's going on in the church. Did I lose that church that I birthed? I spent 18 months there. Did I lose that church? Have they lost? Have they, have they neglected the gospel that I gave them? You could imagine his heart being torn with that. And Paul was divided between two competing desires. And you can probably understand that. It was either to preach the gospel and to plant churches, which was his heart, or his care for the Corinthian church. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at one place working, but your mind and heart being somewhere else? You've all done that, right? You know that you've got to do this, and there's a great opportunity, but really your mind is somewhere else. And it gets to the point that you can't even focus what's going on here. In this case, Paul's spirit was so much with the Titus and the church that he could not do a great work in Troas. There was one miracle, great miracle done in Troas, but Paul could not capitalize on it because his spirit was so conflicted and desiring. This anxiety led Paul to leave a wide-open door for gospel preaching and planting the churches to go look for Titus. He didn't come, so now I have to go and see and find him. I need the information. I need to know if we were successful. And it's here that we see the effects of the sin perpetrated upon Paul on his last visit. 
For see, many of us think that we can sin, we can hurt someone's feelings, we can, we can do something, and then we say, I'm sorry, and then we just walk away. Have you ever had some of that? I mean, they just, like a flame, they just burn everything, and then they walk away as if nothing matters, thinking that there's no ripple effects. Well, here we see a, a, a tragic effect of sin in a church and how they treated Paul. And the fact that it caused Paul not to have any rest. And even though a door was wide open for him to preach the gospel, he could not do so, but had to leave. The conflict in Corinthian was a design of Satan to keep Paul from sharing the gospel. Remember the end of the verse that we learned last week? Be not ignorant of Satan and his devices and his schemes. That's what Satan wants to do with you. He wants to take the sin in your life, the unresolved conflict, the problems and the troubles, the ways in which you do not have faith in God, and what his desire is to plant that sin in you, to cause you unrest, to cause you to to be burdensome in the heart, and to cause you to be paralyzed in the cause of Christ. In this case, it was effective. For Paul had to leave and say, I have to go find Titus. What a sad story. What about the doors that could be opened there? What about those that could have been saved? Satan schemes to keep us paralyzed. In other words, what you and I need to realize is we need to resolve conflicts. We need to resolve sin as soon as possible. And hence why we talked about last week in church discipline is we cannot let sin just fester in the body of God. For it will prevent Orangeville from doing what God has called us to do. But not only that, let's take that and now break it apart. For even though we are members together, we are individual members of the church. And if there is sin in your life, unresolved conflict, or, or some type of thing in which you're, you're losing the battle with sin, and you've not resolved it and reconciled it through the gospel, it will affect you. And you say, well, this just affects me, but it doesn't, does it? Sin affects everyone that touches it. It affects everyone in your life your husband, your wife, your children, those around you, it will affect your church. And so we need to realize many times when a church finds itself paralyzed, you find yourself in the same way. It's most likely because of a sin that's not been dealt with. Satan knows that he cannot prevail against the gates of, uh, or the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, right? That's what God has promised. Christ has promised that. But all he has to do is paralyze you. All he has to do is just keep the wheels from moving. So we need to realize that sin in our lives, sin in the church, will lead to lost opportunities. So I want to challenge you before you go on, is there any event in your life right now in which you're struggling? Is there anything in which God says, here's a door that's wide open, walk through it, but your heart is so restless, it's so full of anxiety because of past sins or unresolved conflict, Forgiveness that needs to either be given or asked for. That's preventing you from doing what God has called you to do. Then take care of it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Be involved today. We now go into the next part, and we go from there. We're going to go to a little transition. The passages from 2.14 to chapter 7, verse 4, is a long explanation of Paul's boldness in writing the severe letter to the Corinthians. He defends himself against complaints that he overstepped the bounds of their friendship by challenging their behaviors and motivations. You can almost imagine how that might go. 
So here we go. Paul is, is sharing a story. Now all of a sudden he's going to take a break. And it's kind of an extended break from chapter or verse, that last verse we read. He's going to go on from 7.5 to talk about the, what happened after Troas. But as you can see, here he is. He's having anxiety. He's having problems. He has a restless spirit. But then we see how Paul responds to that. And I love how he responds because we see that in verse 14. Paul responds by what? By praising God. And what happens when you and I are involved in sin and we confess it is we need to respond by praising God. Do you find yourself in a tough spot? Do you find yourself on the tail end of sin? Not the fact that you're sinning, but maybe someone's, uh, you're, you're facing the consequence of someone else's sin against you. Well, praise be to God. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. In this passage here, Paul is going to use two metaphors to defend himself as a faithful servant of God. Even as his restless spirit, he recognizes and goes back to the gospel and says, here's where I find my strength. Even in the midst of troubles, even in the restlessness and the anxiety and not knowing what's going on, I got to rest in what is secure. And he rests, rests in the things of God and the promises of God. The first metaphor we see is a parade. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now we know a little bit about that, right? You ever thought of seeing a victory parade? How many of you have ever seen like the Lakers victory parade? You know, the Cardinals, the Angels. Remember those days? One day maybe we'll see a Clipper parade. I don't know. But as you see, you see a victory parade and everyone is going down there, right? And everyone is up. And as they go, everyone is just shouting uh, exultations to them. You know, they're maybe even shouting their names as they're going down the streets. Their colors are displayed. Everyone is happy. Everyone's getting high five. The media is there. People have lined up maybe even for miles and, and blocks just to see their heroes. So as you have that in mind, you can almost imagine what Paul is talking about, about a triumphal procession. Now, if you have that in mind, you're close but you're not all the way there because this procession is a little bit different. See, this would be a very visual word picture for the first century here when he says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. See, Paul has a view of himself that's a little bit different than when we think of a triumphal procession. He's thinking of a Roman procession. Now, I want to go you back here, take you back here is as we see in the Roman times, as they would always, after, after a victory, they would go back to Rome, and the people would build grandstands, and they would see all these things in which they would build all these things so they could honor their generals and their soldiers. But in this case, Paul does not see himself as a returning general or as a soldier. Paul views himself four different ways. First, Paul views himself as a former enemy of God. And see, that's what we have to understand. And in this, in this procession, you would have the general coming down, and there would be the flag waving, maybe the confetti. There would be the screams and the exultations, as maybe they're shouting out the general's name, or maybe a loved one who's a soldier, a returning, conquering hero. 
But as they would hear these words, what Paul is saying here, he doesn't lead us as a conquering hero, because at the end of that procession would then be the captives, those that were the conquered slaves of the generals. And what this is saying here in this portion of Scripture is Paul saying he leads us as a conquering general. He leads us as conquered slaves. And this is what Paul is talking about. So you can almost imagine it might be something similar. You can imagine maybe a Laker parade. There's probably more Laker fans here than anything else. You can imagine a Laker parade, and as they're going down through the street, you're all shouting their names, and you're shouting the name of the coach, and maybe everyone else. And then you can imagine, if you could, this would how it would be, is you didn't see who their defeated foe was. Pick out your favorite one. Maybe it's the Bulls or someone else like that. Maybe the Miami Heat. And could you imagine the Miami Heat coming down with tattered clothes and naked in chains, torn as they're hungry, walking through? Now, some of you probably say, that's a good thought. That's a good view. But that's the view, really, what's coming here. You see, Paul doesn't view himself as a conquering hero or soldier of Christ. He says, no, I see myself as a conquered enemy of God. We were by nature children of wrath, he writes in Ephesians. In Colossians, he says we were alienated from God. We were enemies in our mind because of our evil behavior. Paul views himself as an enemy of God. And in it, he's in that long line of the conquered slaves. He views himself not as the victor, but God as the victor of his enemies. As Psalm says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. You see, the conquering returning hero is God himself. He's the one who leads us in Christ. Paul views himself as a humble slave of God, not as a conquering general, but a conquered slave heading to his execution. That's the word picture, the vision that the regular or the early hearers would have heard. And Paul turns his suffering from shame to triumph as he reveals God's power. For he says, God always leads us in triumphal procession. He pictures Paul as a captured slave on display. He says, that is a good thing. Because it reveals the majesty and power of God, and it effectively proclaims the gospel. For he says in Romans, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that's where we see why we see the, 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 the conquering slave or the one who has been shamed. For we walk in Christ's stead. And Christ is the one who, whose obedience led to his shame and his humiliation at the cross. And Paul, though, sees that not as one who's being shamed. He sees his suffering as a badge of honor. He says, I may be a slave of Christ, but it's one in which I gladly claim. And that would be a question I'd ask you. How do you view yourself today? You see, for the Corinthians, that was their problem. The reason why they viewed Paul in such a, a low light because of his suffering and the pain and the struggles he had in his ministry was because for them, that would be shameful. The Corinthians, as you can remember, were freedmen. 
They were for the majority. People who had made it up, the city of Corinth was a place where anyone could make a living. If they'd work hard and, and put in a good work ethic, they could become middle class and reach the things that they all want. So for them to reach a sense of power and prestige was all that they wanted to do. Sounds familiar, we've said, right? Very much the American dream. Very much the Orange County type dream. Get all that you can get. Prestige and power. We keep track with our toys and with our belongings and possessions. But Paul says that's not the case. See, we're not to glory in the things of this world, but we're to glory in the things of Christ. So to be like Christ, a suffering servant, is who Christ has called us to be. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as the Corinthians do? Or do you view yourself as a humble slave of God? One who was once an enemy of God. Do you see the sufferings of Christ as something to want, as we sung in the old rugged cross? Do you see it as something that we ought to attain to? The second metaphor that Paul uses is that of aroma and fragrance. As he says, And God be thanks to God, who in Christ spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, of God everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul again uses a word picture. This word picture, instead of as a, of a conquered slave, he uses one of, of a perfume, of a fragrance with a great aroma. And it permeates everywhere, and it falls on everyone. In this case, it's one that, that reaches everywhere. And everyone must take notice. Christ is that fragrance. He's the sweet smell to God. He's the sacrifice. And that's why I had Matt read that portion of Scripture earlier. As they talked about the lamb that was to be given in the morning, and the lamb that was to be given at night. In the case, day after day, year after year, generation after generation. Could you imagine the burdensome of doing that each and every day? But in this case, we see that here today, that Christ has once for all been the sacrifice for our sin. Amen? You can say amen. It's okay. We're not Baptists, but we're close. Okay? Christ is that sacrifice for sin. So for you and I, we do not have to do the burdensome day after day, twice a day of the, of the, of the Lamb. It's done for us. And in Christ, He presented Himself, His death, as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. And for you and I, we don't stand before God on our own sacrifice. You and I are a sweet-smelling fragrance for God only when we stand in the work of Christ, right? Amen? We got that? We understand that. We've gone through that quite a bit here. And we need to understand, is that's what he's saying, is because we stand in Christ, Christ is that sweet aroma. Now, could you imagine? You know, we read these portions of Scripture, as Matt read earlier, and it sounds kind of interesting. But could you imagine the smell of that place? I don't think it would be a place that would smell the greatest. Coppery blood flowing everywhere. Roasted, burnt flesh going up. Sure, they had incense of other things that would go up, maybe to mask the smell, maybe. But it's probably something that you and I probably would not be attracted to. It was probably a very brutal, brutal experience. 
It was not a visual thing that you and I would say, boy, let's see that again. At least I, I hope not. To see an animal cut and eviscerated and poured out and everything on there and then burnt. It's not something that you and I would say, boy, that smells good. Could they bottle that? But in this case, it was appeasing and pleasing to God. In the same way, if you and I were to be uh, right there personally at the cross, we would have averted our eyes. The smells of Jesus and the two other men probably would have been very offensive. But he again uses the word picture of a fragrance, of an aroma. You can't escape it. It's everywhere. But Paul seeks to please God by living out the obedience to the sufferings of Christ. And Paul says Christ suffered for us, so we too will suffer for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, when I'm suffering for Christ, when I'm being beaten, when I'm being whipped, when I'm without food, when I'm without a place to stay, when I'm without clothes, when I'm without friends, when I'm in the midst of enemies, when I'm in prison, I am living out the ministry of Christ. And the fact that I too am obeying the Father, trusting that He'll see me through. You see, our obedience to God is a sweet-smelling savory to Him. Hence what He says in Scripture in Samuel. Saul was to to do the sacrifices, or Samuel was to do the the sacrifices. And he says, what do I seek? I seek obedience. Obedience is what God desires. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, later we'll see this in a couple weeks, Paul says, I always carry in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, in the fact that when you and I are obedient in Christ and we carry his death with us, we too then become that fragrance and that aroma that's pleasing to God, but to many it may repel them. And that's what we need to understand. When it comes to Jesus, we cannot be neutral. The fragrance and aroma of the sufferings of Christ, you will either love it or you will hate it. There is no lukewarmness or, ah, you know, I don't know. It's one or the other. The sweet aroma will be sweet to you or it will be a stench in your nostrils. You will either be attracted to it or you will be repelled to it. As he says, for some it's a fragrance from death to death. For some it's a smell from life to life. We saw that back in 1 Corinthians as he wrote to them the first time. For he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let me ask you today, in what ways do you emit the fragrance of Christ? As you walk through, do others smell the sufferings of Christ, the obedience of Christ in your life? Now obviously we're not talking of a smell, but we're talking of are you living out the obedience of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the obedience of Christ in your life? Can someone look at you and say, well look how they're living, that's attractive. They have something I don't. You and I ought to have two reactions. There will be some who will be attracted to our lifestyle of living out Christ's sacrifice, and there will be many who repel it. There's two things that I would grab from that. One, I would see that there is going to be success. Amen? I know that there will be some that will see that if I'm obedient, that will be attracted, and they'll want to hear the gospel. So I can lead those to Christ. 
But just as much as God promised there's going to be some who's going to be attracted by it, I must recognize there are going to be some that are going to be repelled by our testimony. And we need to expect that. We can't be discouraged by that. It's unfortunate and it ought to break our hearts, but yet we ought to realize do not let that stop you from living out the life of Christ. What happens for many Christians is when we get to that point and we see others are not a, doing that, that's when we stop backing away. So when we stop doing what God has called us to do. Why? Because suffering for Christ is sometimes too much. But he tells us to give us us all. How do you respond to the sufferings of Christ? Are you one who, who, who embraces them, embraces the cross? Or are you one who just turns away from it? Is it too much for you? As we saw, as we looked at the radical, God has called us to embrace that cross, deny ourselves, and live within it. So Paul responds by praising God and recognizing, hey, I'm a slave and an enemy of God, but yet I'll be praised because now he has made me his friend. He has made me an aroma and a fragrance for him. And I understand that comes with great blessings and that comes with great consequences. The church of Corinth has not learned that difficult lesson. And I pray that Orange Villa Bible Church today that you'll learn that lesson. That walking in Christ, in obedience to the Father, there will be great blessings in your life, but there will also be great consequences. That's why he tells us, count the cost. Then we see the third thing that I want you to get from this passage, and that's Paul's confidence in the calling of God. Paul's confidence in the calling of God. Even though his heart was heavy, even though he says that I've experienced so much pain and so much suffering, not only physically and mentally, but even in my spirit for the care of the churches. He says, I have a confidence that God's calling is sure in my life. Look at verse 16, 16b. For after Paul writes these down, and he praises God for the triumphal presence and or procession and also the aroma, he says, who is sufficient for these things? What a question. And obviously the implied answer is what? No one. None of us are sufficient for these things. But he goes on to say, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In the spite of God, we speak in Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? No one. However, there is a great encouragement for you today. For God qualifies us for the work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, turn back to there, you got your Bibles open. Turn back a, few, uh, a chapter or two, a page or two. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15. Join with me in verse 9, where Paul is speaking. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I am not worthy, he's saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. We call that that Popeye principle. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God 
that is with me. See here, God is always going to equip those that he called. We see that in the example of Moses. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? It is not I, the Lord. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You and I have to have confidence that God equips us for the work. I'll have to tell you, just as a pastor of this, this small community, there are many times that I ask the question, am I sufficient? I struggle with the concept, what is going on? Why are all these other things going on and, and churches are exploding? And, and what seems to happen here? I have to be reminded to see things as God sees them. And like Paul, am I a faithful stir- servant? As the same as you, are you a faithful servant of God? God's blessings don't always equate to great big buildings and great crowds and great offerings and great programs. It involves one heart at a time submitting to His Lordship. God always equips those who are called. No matter what's going on in Paul's life, Paul is confident in the calling of God. And then he contrasts his ministries with peddlers and those of his of sincerity. And I think this is where Paul now is trying to speak probably to those that are causing the rebellion back in the church of Corinth. There's some, some men who have taken up residence there at the church of Corinth, and they've been trying to malign Paul and diminish him in the eyes of the Corinthians. And they're trying to gain superiority and, and saying, well, see, we're a better minister than Paul. But he marks them as peddlers. When you think of peddler, you think of, of one who sells things. In other words, Paul says, I don't market the, the gospel for personal gain. It's not my goal. I don't market it. He doesn't change his message to the desires, the expectations, and the whims of the customers. We find that in many churches today and many people of how they do it. He doesn't change his, his message and his approach according to the market forces. He's ever faithful to God. He's not like some of those who switch and change with the wind. In other words, I'm not a peddler of the gospel, but we are men of sincerity. I love that phrase. Men of sincerity. I'll have to tell you how many times that my prayer has been, Lord, bring to this church men of sincerity, men who love you, men who have counted the cost. Let me tell you, this church needs them. Your wife needs men of sincerity. Your children need men of sincerity, those who are going to walk in perfect obedience to Christ. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, though, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We recognize that this goal or this walk that we're walking is tough. It's difficult, but we are sincere. We're not trying to make a dime of it, but we're sincerely. We're asking a lot of you. We're sincere. He says, God is my witness. God has equipped me for this. And they speak as in Christ. And many times we just overlook that phrase, but that's, a, that's an interesting phrase. It's an important phrase in the Scripture, in Christ. We're to walk in Christ. We're to live in Christ. We're to speak as in Christ. 
In other words, Paul's confidence was in God as his victor. Even Paul's suffering, as I said earlier, was a badge of honor. Things were going not very well for Paul as he's recounting what was happening during that time in Troas. His heart was restless, his heart was heavy, and it prevented him from doing what God had set before him there, or what the open door, I should say, was there. He had to leave a growing work, an opportunity to take care of some sinful desires that was going on in the church. But then the whole time he's praising God because the suffering marked him as one of God. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. God speaking to Paul. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I have to tell you, that's kind of my key verse. I have to realize that it's God who needs to fill up what's lacking in any of my ability, and it's what God's power has to fill up what's lacking in our church. He says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. See, the Corinthians are boasting in their strengths. Look at all the tongues we can speak. We saw that as we went through the 1 Corinthians last year. But Paul says, I boast not in my strengths, but in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. In other words, Paul says, bring it on. I'm ready for it. I'm a man of sincerity. This is not something I'm just doing just for the heck of it. For I walk and I speak in Christ. I'm ready to embrace the sufferings of Christ. For when I am weak, he says, then I am strong. Let me encourage you today. Humble yourself to walk as Christ walked. In obedience to the Father. For that's what he's caused you to do. And in doing so, it will bring trouble in your life. It will bring struggle in your life. There will be some times in which it will be very tumultuous. The winds will, and the waves will seem high. But as an example, Paul, let's give praise and glory. For even in that, not only do we display God's glory, but we also display His fragrance and his aroma. What does that look like for you? In what way today do you need to humble yourself? Do you find yourself on the side of the Corinthians who are walking proudly, displaying your glory and your strengths? Or do you find yourself into the life of Paul, one who recognizes a view of himself and who God is, and humbly ready to serve him as God has called us to do? I, Father, I, I pray that you help us to do so. Lord, make us very aware of our standing before you. Help us to see that we're to embrace the cross, the sufferings, and the disdain, and many times the, the ridicule that follows one who, who, who is wholeheartedly sold out for you. Lord, may we embrace that. May we see that that's your walk and that's your calling for us. Lord, let us be bold in your calling. Let us walk in a humble way. May you be glorified in that. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. 
Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.